Welcome to the fourth episode of On The Record. I'm Jason Tebb, Chief Executive of On The Market, and over the course of this first season of podcasts, I'll be talking to the innovators and leading figures in our sector to discuss their journey in the industry, their views on prop tech, and their opinions on how adopting new technology can benefit every agent. I'm joined today by Amy Reynolds, Area Director at the leading London and international estate agent Chesterton's, who over her 20-year career has seen that business transform into one which is now leading the way in innovation, environmental awareness and equality in the workplace. She also gave me my first regional management position back in 2007, so I've got a lot to thank her for, and therefore it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show Amy Reynolds. Great to have you with us, Amy. Thanks for having me here. It's been a long time since we last caught up, isn't it? A long time. It has been a long time. I was actually thinking earlier, I remember being pregnant. My daughter's 14 and a half now, and I was pregnant when I first interviewed you, so a really long time. I feel so old. I feel (laughs) so old. I'm a bit greyer than I was back then, but there we go. Well, well, that time has absolutely flown in that case, hasn't it? Absolutely flown. I'm going to go and crack on straight away with the first question, which is always one that fascinates me. Everyone I speak to in agencies always come into the business for different reasons. Some people have fallen into it. Some people left another sector to go into it. But I'll start by asking your story, really. Tell us a bit about your story. How did you become an estate agent? Maybe give the listeners some insights into your career so far. Well, I was at university. I was doing a degree at Keele in criminology and psychology. About to finish and I lined up to go traveling. Can't remember exactly what animal I was meant to trek across some Nepal environment but I think it was some sort of llama or something like that and it was all, all sorted and then my dad's like can you not just get a job and I love my dad and I thought <laughs> well uh, all right I can do both things I'll get a job and then I will go and do my llama trekking whatever it was that I got planned I thought well what am I going to do I lived in the Midlands I've gone to university sort of north Midlands thought I'll come to London that'll be exciting save some money just get a job what can I do I'd sold Clark's shoes since the age of 15. That had got me all the way through my degree as well. Every holiday, every weekend, in several different branches, I'd always been able to sell shoes. So I thought, I'll sell something, either houses or cars. I know nothing about cars. You know that. You know from, I'm sure you remember from years ago. I'm well aware, yes. Exactly. I know nothing about cars. And I thought, well, it's got to be houses. Came to London, lots of job interviews, got most of them. Didn't get one, funnily enough very glad I didn't get that one came to Chesterton's now that was in July 2000 and the idea was to be there for a year save some money I loved it I still want to go traveling I'm just gonna have to wait till I retire now because I'm not going anywhere no you're not going anywhere and you've been there over 20 years now is that right yeah wow and did you take the you did you take the normal path from you know being a trainee a junior negotiator and then go through to being valuer branch manager and area manager is that how that path took you Sort of with a bit of a twist. I started out in sales as a negotiator and I did that for a couple of years. Soon, you know, top neg, first three years actually. And then in the third year, the manager left and they didn't easily find another manager, which might have been me being like, no, not him. No, not him. And they were like, well, you do it then. So I became the manager having been negotiator and then straight to manager. I wasn't very good at it initially because I kept selling everything. And that's not the point when you're a manager. Because they want their comms, right? They want their commission. And if, if you're taking it, you're listing it and you're selling it, they've got nothing to do, right? Exactly. And that's what I had to work out. That the office would only be as big as me if I didn't stop doing that and work out how to train someone else to do it. So I got the hang of that. And then 
I think it was five years in, I realized the office only had sales. And if we were going to be really successful, and we were doing well by then, that we needed to add in lettings. Mm. So I just asked, can we do lettings? Bit of a battle ensued, but the MD at the time said yes. And I became the lettings and sales manager, having never done lettings before. And nobody in the office did lettings. So it was new. And I just bought a book on the Housing Act, read a few things, did my first two lets very quickly because that's what lettings is like and just had to learn. And back then we didn't have all the systems and departments that Chesterton's has now. So it was really me working it out, but hired someone that understood lettings and we got through it and the office became really successful because I decided just to have one team. It was going to be easier. We all did sales and lettings and we took market share and did, did brilliantly. And it's still that Barnes office to this day is still one of our very successful operations. It's brilliant. And it reminds me of the times, you're absolutely right, way back then, 15 probably years ago, that not every agency did lettings. Not every agency had a substantial lettings business. You look at it now, any one of those real top estate agency businesses almost has to have a lettings portfolio, the rent management portfolio, which is, you know, many of those branches rely on their drip feed income from that source. So it's very different to how it was back then when it was almost seen as an option. I remember going to some branches when I was usually picking up keys or something from those branches and they didn't really have a lettings business at all or just have one person at the back did the odd thing now and again. And now that's completely different. In fact, in some branches, the lettings staff levels are higher than sales, aren't they? They are. I mean, lettings is a machine at our company and we've got a huge number of people back office that are real Trojans of the business for keeping it going. The guys on the front line are running ragged, doing all the volume of viewings, registering applicants. I mean, there's so little stock out there now. You put a good property on in somewhere like Putney, you'll get 100 applicants within a few hours that have to be processed. Mm -hmm. Once you've got that deal, then there's all the paperwork, all the legislation, the regulations. I don't think people realize how much work there is involved. You need a large team. And I think it's easier now for the big firms that can do that. We can specialize in it. And I think as legislation continues to change, and you know, I saw a stat the other week, I have no idea whether it's up to date or accurate, but I saw a statistic that suggested that still 50% of all rentals are done privately via a landlord. But surely as the legislation continues to change, as tax liabilities change, the need for a professional agent has got to be growing, hasn't it? Because it's no longer a choice. There's so many things you have to do before, during, and indeed after the tenancies commence that you need a professional agent, surely. I mean, you would think so, but I think the government disagrees. And I think they're very keen to promote landlords doing this for themselves without realising there's got to be at least 100 pieces of legislation that you've got to jump through. And if you don't know those, it can really cause problems if something goes wrong. So I think a lot of those landlords that are doing it for themselves are relying on things not going wrong because they're ignorant of what they probably should have done. And I, I just don't believe that all of those landlords are getting all of it right. I'm sure many of them are doing a very good job, but they're not necessarily complying because the legislation is so complex and it's written in such a way that you have to do this before you do that. And if you've done this, then you've got to do that. And the sequencing of it all, which I think part of it is absolute nonsense. If you've got a good landlord and they're keeping people safe and they've got their gas safes and their electric certificates, but that's not what it is. Just having to give out kind of how to rent guides, all of this. And I don't do lettings anymore. I haven't for a few years, but Knowing what I know, I would not want to let my own property out myself. And I do have that legal knowledge. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's only going to get you know, more complex for the private rented sector over the coming years. So, you know, you need to speak to the people who actually do this day in, day out and manage that process effectively through. I want to move on to something that I learned about you very early on after meeting you. And that is you've got a bit of a knack for 
what I would call startup turnaround um, development. It's something that for some reason, I also have got that knack or certainly interest. It's something that I've always enjoyed was going into a, a branch and having a look at what we could do to make it better or go into a cold start and get it firing. But from your perspective, what would your advice be to an owner of an agency brand who's listening to this today, who's thinking about opening another office or moving into another area? What are the few words of advice you would give to them? I think be very careful, first of all, and make sure there is definitely a market you're moving into. There's always a gap. You can always exploit the gap. That's not the issue. But if it's a small market with very little volume and a lot of agents, it's going to be very hard to make profit. It's going to take you years. So make sure there's a big enough market in the first place. And then it's about how can you stand out? You will need to become an expert in that area. And I do mean you as an individual, whoever you put in there. And often the kookier they are, the better. You need someone that's incredibly resilient, who's going to come up with crazy ideas all the time, that as their manager, you might be driven mad, but you just need someone that bounces back because the phone does not ring. And you do sell your soul. You do door knock. Think of leaflets. Think of things to put in your window if you have a shop front. Try and get that one board up. Anybody that calls up to register, do they know anyone in the area that's looking to sell? Can they introduce me to that person? You have to work out what are your competitors doing and what are they not doing? And if they're busy, if they're big and successful, then what they won't be doing is the donkey work. So that's where you have to start. It's looking for building sites where you might be able to get a link as to who is the owner. Are they looking to sell or rent? Is there any connection to someone that might own multiple properties and might want to sell something? You have to do all of those things and you have to know that the big guys, the main competitors, they don't have time for that because the phone is ringing. That's why there's always an opportunity because it's very tough to both generate business and take care of the business that's coming in. You know, the sales progressing, managing a large pipeline, managing a large team. There's too much to do. So the gaps are there. But if the size of the market isn't there in the first place, you'll crash and burn. There has to be enough business that you can find those multi-agency properties and just pick one thing on at a time and be the best agent. The key thing is you have time. You're on with these other people. They don't have time. They're looking after 20 to 50, 70 other clients, plus the ones in their pipeline. I'm going to look after you until I've sold your property. And it's very much, this is what I will do for you. And if you're not prepared to do that and work incredibly hard, then it really is not going to work. And it may well be that you find someone, they need to have agency knowledge, the person that goes in, but they don't need to necessarily do it for years. It could be somebody quite junior. It's about that person's mentality and their ability to not feel like a failure when several weeks in, nothing has happened, but to feel like I'm making headway. Several weeks in, I've had contact with a number of people. My opportunity is just around the corner. If I keep doing this, I'm going to be successful. And I think I've opened seven cold starts and put either sales or lettings into two or three others, and they're all still operating and they're successful today and they all make profit. So you can do it. And I know we've got the Chestons brand and all the rest. It doesn't matter. You put a big brand in somewhere where they say, oh, we only like small independents. You know, you're never well received when you go in. So it is, it's not down to the brand above the door. It's down to the people in the office. I find the whole process of, you know, cold start launch really fascinating. I used to enjoy it. I wasn't nowhere near as good at it as you were, but I really used to enjoy that sort of in the streets type approach, you know, you're starting from the very basics, all the things that maybe the others aren't doing or don't do, as you rightly say, you are prepared to do. And I think the two key takeaways that I just scribbled down from your description is, first of all, be very prepared, you know, know the market well and be prepared for what's coming. And secondly, be very 
resilient in terms of if you get knocks just keep going keep going and i suppose the third thing is just do those things every single day and just keep at it because you've proven it there were times when i absolutely i remember this very clearly i doubted that we'd ever build one of our particular branches or areas or locations and you know inevitably you'd come in and tell me i was talking rubbish and you'd managed to do it i think it's a skill but i think those things are very useful for others to know as well it's about the longevity the person that needs to be that needs to think about repeat business I want to move on to the ever-changing landscape of property, particularly with technology. And I think we can all agree that technology has had a major impact on this industry and pretty much every other industry as well. I remember those days of applicant cards before CRMs. I remember printing details for every appointment. I don't know whether they still do that anymore. I remember calling people on their landlines, remember what those were before mobiles. But what do you think have been the main benefits of these big digital transformations for estate agents. I remember those days as well. So when I started, because I was the only female in the office, when the photos arrived through the post with double-sided sticky tape to be stuck onto the brochure, that was my job. And there were no floor plans. So that's a big change. I think the biggest change is things like the portals, like on the market coming in, because the data that we've got, but the data that buyers and clients have also got that's opened the market and I think it's allowed many more agents to open. I mean, one of the biggest changes is there's lots more of us now. And I think it's technology that's done that. It's made it easier. You can learn an area. You can work out, well, actually, that area is enormous. Look how many sales there were last year. I can open there and make profit or I should be expanding over to that area. So I think all that data, being able to go on evaluation, knowing what the last sold prices were on the road, this is huge. So technology has definitely helped us. We do. We rely on the portals. We rely on that data. The sold price is the pound per square foot, trying to justify to a surveyor why the mortgage valuation should be okay. We have all of that. But I do miss the old applicant card. I'm absolutely certain the best estate agents are the ones that use a system like that and understand there is more to it than just answering the phone. I mean, our portal leads go straight onto the system. If we don't get hold of them straight away, what's making a negotiator phone them again and again? until they reach them to then find out what they're looking for. I mean, I think a number of people will just through the systems press a button and it's hard to work out who are the hot applicants and who are not. But I would say over the last 20 years, whilst this has come in, what's the next thing? I feel like when Foxons did it 20 years ago and they built their own system, boss and all the rest of it, they were the ones that made everyone realize there's something else out there. Same as Rightmove. But what's next? If we all keep doing the same, then state agents will largely be the same. It's harder to separate yourself. I think it's going to be agents like Chesterton's that have got data scientists that we've hired who are not from the industry. And a lot of the time, they'll come up with ideas that are wide of the mark, but it's getting people that think differently. What's the next bit of disruptive technology? Because the agent that works that out, that is going to be the next market leader. And obviously, Chesterton's already up there. and We've done a lot and we've used a lot of technology and that has propelled us. But we need to find the next big thing that's going to put us number one everywhere and give us that competitive edge until everyone else catches up. And that's the next bit of technology that I don't even think exists yet. Yeah, I think obviously running a portal, I'm obsessed with technology and I can assure you I'm also on the lookout for that particular piece that is the next big thing, the next game changer, the thing that really transforms and propels the ability for an agent to either list more properties, sell those properties quicker reduce fall-through rates, increase transaction 
speed, maybe provide more information up front to a consumer, which is what a lot of our consumers are asking for. And I think all of those things, or the vast majority are around that data piece. You know, I wrote a blog article I posted and I said something like valuations are now more finger on the button rather than finger in the air. And by that, I meant there was a time unless you had some real direct comparables of things that you had sold yourself on that road and had the details printed in front of you and the little price achieved written on top, unless you had that, you didn't have any comparables. And you were going largely based on your gut feel. And what's so interesting now is not only do estate agents have all of that access to data at their fingertips, but so do the clients. When you turn up to evaluation, you are doing so already aware that the client has done their own research. And if the client says, I haven't done their own research. They, they probably have anyway, but they just want, don't want to let on. I think that is a massive shift in the way that you can build relationships with your customers. And I think it comes down to something you mentioned earlier, actually, which again, I talk about a lot, which is the individual, the person, the person who's sitting on the sofa. Technology helps to level the playing field in so many ways, but it can never replace people. And it's your personality that ultimately makes the difference between a potential customer saying yes I trust you and I want to list with you or not and I don't think there'll ever be a replacement for that. I completely agree but I think the problem is being that individual knowing you're good the client thinks we're worth the same because anybody can go on once you've once you're on these portals, you've got access to the database behind, you can turn up and roughly get the price roughly right, or work out what the owner wants for it. And I'm not sure they then understand the worth of a really very capable, qualified, trained estate agent, and not just those things, the the agent that's actually just a cut above all the others. And large firms can all see the top 10 rise to the top every single year, you know who they are. Those are the people you want to sell your property. The clients don't understand this, they've got the data themselves, they think they can do it themselves. I wouldn't want to sell my own home because I'd be emotionally involved. I want an independent person in the middle that I can say, well, can you ask for more? Can we do this? Can we do that? And have that chat and see what strategy they've come up with. I don't think there's a lot of agents have a strategy. I don't think there's any tactic. And I don't think they know how to explain to an owner why the property isn't necessarily selling and the market conditions and the economy and all the things that matter. And the time frame, leaving something on the market for months, if the market's flat or falling, that is not in the client's best interest. I don't know that we're having these conversations because technology has just made it easier for anybody to list a property. I think it's taken away some of the credibility or at least the perception of it to the client. Um, you don't get people in dinner parties thinking they can be a doctor or, or even a librarian or a bin man or anything else. But everybody thinks they can be an estate agent. Everybody thinks they can do my job. And they also think, I know the value of things in Scarborough and Scotland and Northampton. And they'll tell me about their cousin's property, a two-bedroom flat in so-and-so area. And I'm thinking, I've never been there. I don't know. who. It's not that simple. Is it the right price? Yeah. <laughs> I have to ask you, is it the right price? I don't know. I've never been. Yeah. yeah, and that's what people think now. I think they think this is so easy. What we do is so easy. You just put it on the market. You know the price because the portals tell you the price and then you put it on and the buyer phones you and they immediately say, I want to buy that property, the one on the market with the blue door at 775. Yeah. Not actually what happens. And we all know that in the industry, but explaining that to our clients when technology is sort of indicating they can, Purple Bricks saying, you can do this for yourself. Yeah, I think you're so right. And I think the perception... Probably even now, you know, which is no different to how it was when I started 20 odd years ago, the perception is, is that listing a property, putting it online and doing some viewings is the sum total of the work required. 
Whereas if you're in the industry, you realize that's probably 5%, if that, of the work. And the other 95% is managing the expectations of the buyer and seller, managing the chain, dealing with the lost fencer certificate from 1975, you know, how, struggling with a down valuation or a mortgage ex- offer expiry. All of those things that most people don't even think about are the things that make really good agents good and great agents exceptional because it's those elements that only probably come from experience and from understanding and from empathy with that potential client as well. You're listening to On The Record, the On The Market podcast with me, your host, Jason Teb, and my guest this week, Amy Reynolds. We've been hearing about Amy's career so far and getting her insights on starting new offices, helping out branches that are struggling, and the role that technology plays in the industry. Moving on from this, we're going to chat about how the property sector as a whole has developed and get Amy's views on how the industry has adapted to changing attitudes towards equality and diversity within the workplace. So, Amy, you are a private person, and it took me ages to persuade you to come on this show in the first place. But I was so keen to speak to you because I know, and I'm not just saying this, I know from my time at Chesterton's that you're without doubt one of the best agents I've ever worked with. Um, Your energy, enthusiasm, um, picking me up when I was down, which was a lot, um, was certainly inspirational. I took away many things that you taught with taught me and applied it to my future career. So first of all, thank you. Um, but I wanted to draw your attention to something you, you rarely quote on Twitter or say things on social, but something you did say a couple of years ago on Twitter, I want to read to you. And I quote, uh, I love being a female estate agent at a high level. I want to inspire other women to become estate agents. What matters is revenue. Gender doesn't come into it. It's the figures that count. That's how you earn respect in this industry. I found that fascinating. And it was something that I thought I've wanted to do, you know, a section of this podcast on exactly that theme. And then when I saw that, I thought you're the person to speak to. So um, I think we can agree that estate agency has been slower than some sectors to develop its attitudes towards diversity and inclusion, to be fair. So my question is, what were your experiences as a woman in property when you started 20 years ago? And now as a senior leader in your business, have things changed in that time? So I rarely speak, as you said, I avoid social media. I'm very private and I only really speak on this topic and only when asked. And because I'm so private, I'm rarely asked. But you did dig me out. And because it's this topic, I thought I'm going to have to actually do this because I'm the only senior female in Chesterton's on sales. So if I pass over this opportunity, there is no voice again for women. And I think it's so important. When I started, I was one of two female negotiators in the company. We had 16 offices. I didn't initially notice. And I didn't notice when, as the only female I mentioned earlier, I was the one that had to put together all the brochures and go around with a little tape recorder, noting how many, oh gosh, the radiators, UPVC windows, all of that, whilst my male colleagues were busy selling. I soon did realise that and then thought, well, I'm just going to have to be better. I'm not going to be able to avoid the admin. That's clearly something that with my gender I'm going to have to do, but I'm going to sell as well. And I outsold them and we had arguments. And my colleagues, I'm under five foot tall. My two colleagues were six foot five and six foot six. And they were loud and domineering and played all the tricks and made it very clear there was not enough room for me. But that was never, ever going to put me off. In fact, quite the opposite. Do you know what? Learning all that admin has stood me in such good stead. 
because I know how to upload photos, do deal with a floor plan, deal with EPCs, land registry. I can do every aspect of this job. And that's one of the reasons that I believe I'm a good estate agent and hopefully a good manager. So what has changed? Do women have to do all of the admin now? No, but many still do. We don't seem to be able to hire men into that part of the role. In terms of the negotiators, 25% of Chesterton's negotiators in sales are female. That's a massive uplift from when I started. But it's not enough. An industry where gender is literally irrelevant. So therefore, 50% should be female and they are not. And I do call out my peers on this because they are male and they are hiring and they're as responsible as I am that we need to make sure that there is a balance. And the same for other minorities. I don't restrict myself to just pushing for women. We need to be more diverse because our clients are diverse and our voice, if we're just one voice, if we're just a middle-aged white man voice, how are we representative? How are we going to make sure our business is the best? We need, all industries need this and our industry is behind. So there has been change. We have got more women. There are still not enough with us and with our competitors. When I look across, I look after Southwest, where are the female managers outvaluing? There are very few with us and with our competitors. What I think has changed is certainly in Chesterton's, women now know they can speak out. And I really hope that's happening for our competitors. So we've got a very strong women's forum and they did that for themselves. And that's full of a group of quite smart, very smart, bright, ambitious women who want a voice and they have a collective voice. Now they're a driving force at Chesterton's. They're listened to and they improve our business policies that proportionally impact women more than men. So they've just improved our parental policy and now they're working on bringing attention to menopause awareness. So we all need to do this. We all need to make change for everyone. And it's easier to do now than it was 20 years ago. That's the big change, that if we speak now, we are more likely to be heard because we can point out that there is unconscious bias. We can explain what that is. And hopefully someone will go, I didn't realise. Yes, okay, I need to think differently. I need to hire differently. And I don't think those conversations were happening when I started. But we need women in senior roles because if they're not there, how are we going to ensure that when these important issues are raised by women, like a forum at Chesterton's as a safe place, but in other industries and other, well, other estate agencies, when someone speaks up, you need a senior female to push that forward and to champion it. Um, you know, quality and inclusion needs to be at the heart of all decision making. And that that's still for minority groups. This is not just about women. Now, if we just take a look at it, the rewards-based system in a state agency, we all know we're on commission and we want to be rewarded. That's really important. But what are the you know, ski trips, drinking, cars, fast cars, football, taking us out to things like that? When we look at what the rewards and recognition scheme are at our company and at many of the others, it's quite male-led. And that's something, I'm not saying women can't enjoy all of those things, but it's still not a very diverse offering. Those are things that can change. So there is change, but it is absolutely not enough. And it's down to individual females to speak out. And it's definitely down to senior females to do what they can to push it forward. But ultimately, if men are hiring and there's not many women in their company, well, then that's where the problem is. Yeah. I mean, look, I agree with everything you said and something that's you know so important to me and my business on the market is making sure that we have forums and opportunities for people to share and air views and make sure that I as probably 
as some might regard me as a bit of a dinosaur, sort of mid, middle-aged white guy, and therefore I might have some views which are probably, you know, could be considered either out of date or I need to think and revise those views. And having those forums, we have a number of working groups where our teams meet and talk about lots of different different things and incentives and and uh, strategies that we can employ to increase those levels of inclusion and, and diversity in the business. Just having those opportunities for people to speak and have a forum is in itself a massive step forward from a time when I remember if we take another issue, which is well-being, sort of emotional well-being, you never talked about, you know, feeling down or you wouldn't talk about, you know, having any emotional problems, you just wouldn't do it because, again, probably it was a because it was a male thing. You didn't discuss it and you felt nervous about discussing it. And now, thankfully, by the sound of it, things are starting to change, which is good. I want to come back to something that you mentioned there about unconscious bias, and that is the bias, I'm assuming you mean by that, the bias that the you know the, the male members of, of staff have. They don't think about it. It's not something they consciously do, but you know, subconsciously they're making decisions that maybe don't include women into the mix of any of the strategies. Do you think it is unconscious or do you think there is still, and I'm talking in general now, not necessarily about your business, but in, do you think in, in general there is still an element of conscious bias with men still making decisions, knowing exactly how that could make implications for women? I mean, I think it has to be both because if it was only unconscious, I just think more women would have trickled in somehow. The statistics on, I think I read the other day, only 13% of estate agents are owned by women. Say a firm as progressive as ours and you've got 25% female negotiators. It can't all be unconscious, so no. And it sort of makes sense because if you've been a successful man in this industry, surrounded by people similar to yourself and it's going well, why would you rock the boat? It's working for you. Change doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any better. I can see people thinking that. I don't agree with them. I think they need to try something different and see that actually their business might take the next leap forward. But I mean, actually, I've got an example. I've just hired a female manager and she's really chomping at the bit to get back into this particular market because she used to work there and she was an assistant manager many years ago. And she couldn't be promoted to the manager because the owner of the business only, he personally would only manage men. So the assistant managers were all women, but the managers were all men. And she's very keen to get back into that marketplace. And um, and we've already got the market share, but take even more of it because she's a very capable estate agent. She's a successful manager, but she wasn't given that opportunity. And that was not unconscious bias. Mm. And I think that one thing that, as you said earlier, has changed and you're absolutely right in highlighting it and making it very clear to the industry as a whole as well as the people who are listening to this podcast that people should speak about it and they should if they feel that there's more that needs to be done then say there's more that needs to be done and I think that has changed you know there, there's multiple opportunities for people to voice their thoughts and ideas in a way that maybe back then it, there, there wasn't the opportunity to do so so I think if anyone is in that situation listening just talking about it and talking with your peers and with your other members of your or your team and with your manager and line manager is absolutely important as well. And can I add to that though, with unconscious bias, we've just said people need to talk about it, but we only realized six months ago at our company that some women were not putting their hand up. So we have a training academy and we're very, very lucky that the manager of that, he is true. I don't think unconscious bias exists with him. He is purely based on meritocracy. If somebody looks good, sounds good, if they fit the role, he does not care about anything else, he just hires them. And as a result of him, a lot of our offices have become more diverse based on one person, just hiring new people based on what they say. And that's brilliant. And I was very happy because I could see more women coming in, not very many, people of colour coming in. But then a male manager phoned me and said, 
Amy, we've got a problem. We've got a female of the training academy. He said, I think she should go into sales. And when he pushed her, she'd had a day in his office. She's like, no, I'm going to lettings. And he was like, why? You've had a great day with us. Why? And she said that part of what we do in the training course is we send them into offices. And based on where our training academy is, the nearest offices just happen to have all male teams. It's that's just bad luck. And so these people have been going there. And this woman said she'd found it quite intimidating. She joined us thinking she would go into sales. But having experienced offices that were all male, nothing went wrong. Nothing was bad. But she just felt it was intimidating. So she said she was going to go into lettings. And when he called me and gave me the name, I thought, well, I've got to phone this person. I don't know her. I just called her and explained it. Is this true? And she said, yes. So I spoke to the hiring manager and said, we've still got a problem. We've got to change this. So he's changed. And now those trainees have to be sent to a range of offices, including those where we've got plenty of women and female managers. But the other thing we've changed is that I now go in as the only senior female. Every time he's got a new group, which is every three, four months, I go in and spend some time with them and just talk about the market, the economy, my my career in sales and how much I enjoy it, that I've done lettings as well, so that they can see there is a role model at Chesterton's who's female. And just in the last month when I did that and spent some time, I've been told in advance that these people who wanted to go into sales, which was the men, and who wanted to go into lettings, which was the women, I knew that. I didn't do anything different to normal. The next day, one of the women said to the manager, actually, I'm thinking of sales based on Amy coming in yesterday. Can I go and have a day in one of her offices? So I put her in an office with lots of women. She absolutely loved it. And she asked if she could work in my region. She started there two weeks ago and she agreed her first deal yesterday. Great story. And that sums up also great management, doesn't it? Regardless of you know what gender you are, what your race is, it's great management is spotting and highlighting people and being prepared to talk to them and being giving advice and helping them out. And I think that's a great story. Sounds like she's got a great career ahead of her as well. So that's really good. I want to move on to those rare moments when you're not working, which sounds like it's not very often because you're probably working most of the time. But in your spare moments, um, what are your interests? What are you passionate about? What do you like to do? Well, my absolute favourite thing to do is read. I read oh, every spare minute. If ever I find myself, like during COVID, covering viewings, gosh, I'm back, I've put myself back in a work moment. Um, but when we were so short-staffed, everybody was ill, the whole team's down, even waiting for a viewer to arrive, I would still be on my Kindle app on my phone. Obviously not when any applicant is anywhere near me, because that's not professional. Of course not. No. <laughs> every spare minute that I'm not with my family or at work, I read. That's my hobby. What do you get out of it? And do you have a favourite type of material? Is it fiction, non-fiction, or is it just literally anything, just consuming information? Mainly fiction, but I do like anything. I love a good novel that I can really get stuck into. I'd rather read than watch the TV or listen to music. I just read A Little Life that has now become my favourite book of all time. The one, my previous favourite book was Flowers for Algernon. So slightly classic based, um, but I'll just read anything. Some books I can devour in an hour. There's no content to them, but I just, it, it helps me wind down. I'm not at work when I'm reading. Otherwise, my brain just keeps coming up with ideas. You know, my kids will always say, mom, you're not present. And I'm not because they're talking to me. And I'm thinking, hey, if I did that, or why don't I get that office? And I'm scribbling notes. When I read, I don't do that. My brain is just totally involved in whatever story or plot I'm reading. I completely empathize with that. My brain rarely switches off. So I have to do things to actively concentrate on other things so that the other part of my brain that's coming up with the latest crazy idea or harebrained scheme doesn't have a chance to process itself because I'm too busy concentrating on not burning the cooking or something or whatever else that I'm doing at the time. So I totally get that completely. When you were first starting out all those years ago, did you have 
a mentor or a coach or someone that you looked up to either you know someone in the industry or maybe even out of the industry was there anyone that you aspired to be like not directly there were really no mentors in my actual office although my first boss he was quite tough in terms of how to learn if I was on the phone and the conversation wasn't going well he would just reach over cover the receiver so I now can't hear anything shout at me what I was doing wrong give me the receiver back having missed two minutes of the conversation and I'm not saying it's a good way to learn but he was always bang on in the information he gave me so I did respect him and I did learn agency very quickly because I had to of him and every so often we still text and stay in touch but in terms of mentors when I think about when I started we only had two female managers then but the two people I can name instantly out of the 16 managers are those two women I don't think I consciously realised that those people were helping me. And certainly Deborah Stroud still works for us now. She's been at Knightsbridge office about 40 years. I mean, she really was a trailblazer, one of the very few women that started out in this industry. And she's still there now. And I hope everyone there gives her the credit and respect she's due because she's exceptional. And I absolutely think of her as kind of like a, a heroine for me. It was those two female managers. They're the names that I can instantly think of as opposed to all of the men wasn't direct, they weren't necessarily in my offices or spending time with, but whenever there was an awards night or something, they did always seek me out. When I look back, I think, yeah, they were making it very clear that there was a career here for a woman, even though that wasn't so obviously said. So I do thank those two women. And that's why it's so important that you do what you do in terms of, you know, acting as a role model now to others and to people who are joining your business and other businesses like yours in the modern day. It's how to look up to someone and admire someone and want to aspire to be like them and you act very much act as that role model now and talking about it in the way that you have done today is I'm sure going to be of great benefit to people who are listening as well. I want to close with just a couple of other questions really. My first is something I ask yeah I I think I ask it pretty much every time and that is what advice would you give to people starting in the industry for the first time? What's those little snippets of advice? It doesn't matter. Joining this industry, you can be old or young, first career, second career. So first of all, don't be afraid to just try. If you have confidence and you like people and you think you like property, you can do this job. But then once you're in the job, following up with people, remembering that this is really important to that individual that has cleaned the house, hidden all the washing, put the kids' toys in the boot of the car. This is someone's home, probably, not in all areas, but certainly in Southwest it is. So just make sure you remember that you're doing a good job, not just for our industry and our brand or whoever you work for, but actually there is a client there. So remember that and give feedback and be honest with that feedback and transparent. Don't not call because the applicant hasn't called you. It's our job to beat the client. Don't let the phone ring first. So have conversations with the clients. You don't even have to be an experienced agent to be able to say, you know what, I couldn't tell how that viewing went. I'm not sure this is going to happen. We'll have to keep trying. If they come back to me, I'll let you know. But just give them something. But thanks for tidying up. The place looked great. So talk to clients, stay in touch with people. The same with applicants. They're not just another number. There's not just too many applicants. Actually bother to spend time, get to know them. What do they want? What's going to make a difference? When I've had people buy things, which is the complete opposite of what they said, but you have to work out needs and wants. So if you're new, think about people, spend that time, make notes, follow up, just follow up, follow up and be consistent. If you've got a voice and you're personable, you can do this job. Thank you. I've got nothing else to add to that. That's why I was very grateful for you to give me my big break all those years ago. So um, great advice. I couldn't absolutely couldn't top that. So thank you very much. 
We're sadly running out of time, but Amy, thanks so much for joining us and really interesting to hear about your career and your experiences. Thanks for having me here. We're going to add the links to the Chesterton's website on our social channels and we'll also add the links to the two books you mentioned earlier, which are Flowers for Algernon and A Little Life. And we'll put those in our show notes so if any of our listeners would like to find out more, they can do so. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with our next episodes by following us at onthemarket.com on Twitter. You can follow us on all the other social media channels too, LinkedIn and Instagram, or search for On The Record in your podcast app and hit the follow button. But just remains for me to say, Thanks for listening. And Amy, it's been great to chat. And thanks very much.